You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's January 10th. Finally, to the people and leaders of Iran, we want you to have a future, and a great future, one that you deserve, one of prosperity at home and harmony with the nations of the world. The United States is ready to embrace peace with all who seek it. That was President Donald Trump on Wednesday morning, addressing the nation after Iran launched a barrage of missiles at two bases housing American soldiers in Iraq the night before. The attack was retaliation for a U.S. drone strike that killed Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani late last Thursday, an operation authorized in response to unspecified signs of an imminent threat to the U.S., In his address, Trump also vowed to impose further economic sanctions on Iran. Exactly what will happen next between the U.S. and Iran is unclear, but the situation continues to evolve quickly. Yesterday evening alone, the House of Representatives voted to limit the president's ability to take further military action against Iran, and Western intelligence officials announced that a Ukrainian passenger jet that crashed near Tehran killing everyone on board, appeared to be shot down by Iran's air defense system. Over the past week, RAND researchers have provided important context on this crisis. In today's episode, we'll highlight some of their insights. Let's start with Ariane Tabatabai, who, along with co-authors, penned two commentaries as tensions peaked between the U.S. and Iran this week. In the New York Times on Monday, Following Tehran's announcement that it would cease to honor all operational restrictions imposed by the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, Tabatabai took a long view of the U.S.-Iran relationship. She said it's unclear exactly what, if any, nuclear activities Iran intends to resume. But de-escalating tensions between Tehran and the U.S. is vital to ensuring that the Trump administration doesn't end up facing the very dilemma that the Iran deal was designed to avoid. The choice between a nuclear Iran or the need to start a war to prevent one. In a second piece, this one in the Washington Post, Tabatabai outlined how Iran's response to Soleimani's death may not be what the U.S. expects. Because Washington started a, quote, proverbial game of chicken with Tehran, Iranian leaders could expand their response over a lengthy period. Although this was written prior to Iran's counterattack on U.S. targets Tuesday night, Tabatabai noted over Twitter that the Iranian retaliation may not be over. There's more the regime could do. Brian Michael Jenkins also considered the different ways that Iran could retaliate, drawing on evidence from the decades-long secret war between Tehran and Washington. Iran has proven to be a master of hybrid warfare over the years, Jenkins said. The regime has used proxies and its own covert operatives to carry out kidnappings and terrorist bombings, to sabotage ships at sea and oil facilities on land, to blow up embassies, and to assassinate government officials. This long list of Iranian actions in its low-level war with the U.S. is unfortunately likely to get longer, said Jenkins. Let's talk about the country caught in the middle of this crisis, Iraq, where Soleimani was killed. Two of our experts focused on a particularly big headline, the Iraqi parliament's vote last weekend to expel U.S. troops. 
Stacy Pettyjohn broke down the status and rights that American troops have in Iraq, as well as the intricacies and history of U.S. basing agreements. Because the Iraqi resolution is non-binding, it's unclear whether Iraq will actually evict U.S. forces. But Pettyjohn said that this news, quote, likely portends the end of the U.S. military presence in Iraq. According to Ben Conable, this would have far-reaching and damaging implications. For example, with no troops on the ground and ostensibly no aircraft overhead, American forces would lose their visibility of ISIS targets in Iraq and the ability to strike those targets directly. And unless Iraqis were to also fully reject Iran's presence in their country, which is unlikely, the U.S. may have to consider Iraq effectively lost to Iran. However, Conable said that there are still practical options remaining for Washington to normalize relations with Baghdad. You can find these commentaries and more at blog.rand.org. And for more updates from our experts as the story continues to evolve, be sure to follow Rand Corporation on Twitter. Now, let's highlight two new Rand reports released this week. First, a study focused on people experiencing mental health disorders while incarcerated. The largest mental health facilities in the United States are now county jails. About 15% of men and 31% of women in jails have a serious and persistent mental disorder. Conservatively, it's estimated that 900,000 people with serious mental illness are admitted to U.S. jails every year, usually as pretrial detainees. Los Angeles County is no exception to this trend. In L.A. County jails, about 5,500 people were in mental health housing units and or taking psychotropic medications. Our researchers explored whether these individuals could instead receive treatment in the community. Based on a variety of clinical and legal factors, they estimated that 61% of those in L.A. County Jail's mental health units could be diverted to programs that offer community-based clinical services. That's more than 3,300 people out of that group of 5,500. Study lead Stephanie Brooks Holiday explained the value of these findings. Quote, Knowing how many people are appropriate for diversion is a first step toward understanding the types of programs, staff, and funding that would be needed to treat them in the community. In another new RAND report out this week, our experts analyze Russia's long history of aggression in the gray zone between peace and war. They identify general patterns in Russian gray zone behavior, which makes it possible to forecast what the Kremlin might do next. In fact, Russia typically fails to achieve strategic success. Understanding where Russia succeeds and where it falls short could highlight opportunities for NATO and other Western powers to better deter, prevent, and counter Russian aggression. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.